You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of The Karma of Untruthfulness, Volume 2 by Rudolf Steiner, A Cycle of Lectures. This is the ninth lecture in the second book. Numerically, it is lecture 22 in the cycle, given in Dornach on the 21st of January, 1917. Let me start by drawing your attention to a number of things which might be of interest to you, beginning with an article in yesterday's issue of titled Schweizerische Bauzeitung, reporting on the Johannesbau in Dornach, near Basel. This is the result of a recent visit of a group of Swiss engineers and architects. The article is most gratifying and fair. Indeed, it is like an oasis in the midst of other things which have recently appeared in print about our efforts, which had their source in our very midst. It is most satisfying to find such a fair discussion that gives the building its due, especially since it comes from specialist, objective quarters outside our own circle. Do read it. Herr Englert, who acted as guide for that group of Swiss engineers and architects, who showed such genuine interest in our building, from the technical and also the aesthetic point of view, has just reported that the article is also due to be published in French, in the Geneva uh, journal titled Bulletin de Technique. Further, I should like to draw your attention to a book. You will excuse my inability to tell you the language, to tell you the title in the original language, just published by our friend Bugayev under his pen name of Andre Belli. The book is in Russian and gives a very detailed account in great depth of the relationship between spiritual science and Goethe's view of the world. In particular, it goes into the connections between Goethe's views and what I said in Berlin in the lecture cycle Human and Cosmic Thought about various worldviews. But it also discusses a, a good deal that is contained in spiritual science. Its connections to Goethe's views are discussed in depth and in detail, and it is much appreciated that our friend Bugiev has published a revelation of our spiritual scientific view in Russian. Herr Maybolt, too, has just published a book in Munich, to which I should also like to draw your attention. The title is The Path to the Spirit, Biography of a Soul. You will find it interesting because Herr Maybolt describes in it a number of experiences he had in connection with the Theosophical Society. These are the oases in the desert of attacks. It seems that another has just appeared, written by one of our long-standing older members. It is said to be particularly scandalous, but I have not yet seen it. These attacks from among our members are particularly unwelcome because we realize that it is precisely these long-standing older members who ought to know better. Yesterday we spoke about aspects of the human being's connections with the supersensible world, particularly with regard to the fact that our dead and indeed all those who have left their bodies and gone through the gate of death 
must be thought of as being in that world. In our present context, it is particularly important to understand that in the world through which man passes between death and a new birth, an evolution, a development, is taking place, just as much as is the case here on the physical plane. Here on the physical plane, taking a shorter span to start with, such as the post-Atlantean time, we speak of the Indian, the Persian, the Egypto-Chaldean, the Greco-Latin, and the modern E period, and so on. And we consider that during the course of these periods, an evolutionary process takes place. In other words, that human souls and the manner in which these souls manifest in the world during this sequence of periods differ in characteristic ways. Similarly, if only one can find sufficiently graphic concepts, one can speak of an evolution that takes place for these periods of time in the sphere through which the dead pass. There, too, an evolution takes place. On all kinds of occasions where this has been possible, this evolution has been discussed in different ways. But relatively easy though it is to speak of evolution on the physical plane, and as you know it is not all that easy in this materialistic age, it is naturally less easy to do so with regard to the spiritual world, since for that world we lack sufficiently graphic concepts. Our language was created for the physical plane, and we are forced to use all kinds of paraphrases and graphic substitutes in order to describe the spiritual sphere in which the dead are living, especially with regard to evolution. Naturally, of particular interest now is the fact that life between death and a new birth in our fifth post-Atlantean period is suitably different from what it was in earlier times. While the materialistic cultural period is running its course here on earth, a great deal is also taking place in the spiritual world. Since the dead have a far more intense experience of everything connected with evolution than is the case for people living on the physical plane, their destiny is most intensely dependent on the manner in which a certain evolution takes place in definite periods. The dead react far more intimately, far more subtly, to what lives in evolution than do the living, if we may use these expressions. And this is perhaps more noticeable in our materialistic age than has ever been the case before. Now, to assist our understanding of a number of things we shall be discussing, I want to introduce into these lectures something that has emerged in relation to this as a result of careful observation of the actual situation. To do this, I shall have to widen our scope somewhat and speak today about various aspects in preparation for the statements toward which our train of thought is leading. I have already pointed out that the right way to look at the human being in relation to the universe is to consider the individual parts of his being separately. From the spiritual point of view, what exists here on the physical plane is more a kind of image, a manifestation. Thus we may regard as fourfold the physical human being we see before us. First we see the head. As you know from earlier discussions, the head 
as it appears in a particular incarnation, is supposed to have reached its final stage in that incarnation. The head is the part most strongly exposed to death. For the way our head is formed is for the most part the consequence of our life in our previous incarnation. On the other hand, the formation of our next head in our next incarnation is the consequence of the life of our present body. A while ago I expressed this briefly by saying, our body, apart from our head, metamorphoses itself into our head in our next incarnation, while our next body is growing toward us, whereas our present head is the metamorphosed body of our previous incarnation, the rest of our body has grown toward us, more or less. There are varying degrees, out of what we have inherited. This is how the metamorphosis takes place. Our head, as it were, falls away in one incarnation, having been the outcome of our body in our previous incarnation. And our body transforms itself, metamorphoses itself, as does leaf to petal in Goethe's theory of metamorphosis, into our head in our next incarnation. Now, because our head is formed from the earthly body of our previous incarnation, the spiritual world has a great amount of work to do on this head between death and our new birth, for its archetypal form must be fashioned by the spiritual world in accordance with karma. That is why even in the embryo, the head appears before anything else in its complete form. For more than any other part, it has been influenced by the cosmos. The body, on the other hand, is influenced for the most part by the human organism. So this appears later than the head in the embryo. Apart from its physical substance, which has, of course, been gathered through heredity, our head, in its form, its archetypal form, is indeed shaped by the cosmos, by the sphere of the cosmos. It is not for nothing that your head is more or less spherical in shape, for it is an image of the sphere of the universe. The whole sphere of the universe works to form your head. Thus we can say that our head is formed from the sphere. Just as here on earth people busily work to construct machines and build up trade and commerce, so in the spiritual world human beings are busy, though not exclusively, developing all the technical requirements, the spiritual technical requirements for building the head for their next incarnation from out of the sphere of the universe, the whole cosmos, in accordance with the karma of their earlier incarnations. We glimpse here a profound mystery of evolution. The second aspect we must consider, if we want to view man as a revelation of the whole universe, comprises all the organs of his breast centered around lung and heart. Let us look at them without the head. The head is an image of the whole spherical cosmos, not so the organs of the breast. These are a revelation of all that comes from the east. They are formed out of what might be called the hemisphere. And there's a diagram. Imagine the cosmos like this then you can see the head as an image of the whole of the cosmos and the organs of the breast can be seen as an image of what streams in from the east the hemisphere i am shading green 
This hemisphere alone works on the organs of the breast. Or expressed as a paradox, the breast organs are half a head. This is the basic form. The head is based on the sphere, the breast organs on part of a circle, a kind of semicircle, only it is bent in various ways so that you can no longer recognize it exactly. You would be able to see that your head really is a sphere had luciferic and aramonic forces never worked on man. And you would see that the organs of the breast are really a hemisphere had these forces never exercised their influence. The direction in relation to the center, one would have to say for ordinary earthly geometry, the infinitely distant center, is eastward, an eastward-facing hemisphere. Now we come to the third part of the human being, excluding head and breast organs, the abdominal organs and the limbs attached to the abdomen. Although this is not an exact term, I shall call all this the abdominal organs. Everything I comprehensively call the abdominal organs can also be related, like the other parts, to forces which work and organize from without. In this realm, they work, of course, on man from the outside, via embryological development, in the way they do, because during pregnancy the mother is dependent on the forces which have to be gathered together to form the abdomen, just as forces have to be collected from the sphere to form the head, and from the east, the hemisphere, to form the organs of the breast. The forces that work on the organs of the abdomen must be imagined as coming from the center of the earth, but differentiated, with all that this entails, according to the region inhabited by the parents or ancestors. The forces all come from the center of the earth, but with differentiations depending on whether a person is born in North America, Australia, Asia, or Europe. The organs of the abdomen are determined by forces from the center of the earth with differentiations according to region. Seen from the occult point of view, the complete human being also has a fourth aspect. You will say that we have already dealt with the whole human being, and this is so, but from the occult point of view, a fourth aspect must be considered. We have examined three parts, so now all that is left is the total human being. This totality, too, is a part. Head, chest, and abdomen all together form the fourth aspect, the totality, and this totality is in turn formed by certain forces. This totality is formed by forces that come from the whole circumference of the earth. They are not differentiated according to region. The total human being is formed by the total circumference of the earth. Herewith I have described to you the physical human being as an image of the cosmos, an image of the forces of the cosmos working together. Other aspects, too, might be considered in connection with the cosmos. For this we would have to think of the spiritual cosmos in relation to the human being. Not only the physical cosmos, we have just been examining... Let me read that again. For this we would have to think of the spiritual cosmos in relation to the human being, not only the physical cosmos. We have just been explain, examining 
the physical human being, so we are able to remain with the physical cosmos. Once we start to consider the discarnate human being between death and a new birth, we cannot remain with the elements of space. For the three-dimensional space that we have, though it determines the measure of the physical human being living between birth and death, does not determine the measure of the spiritual human being living between death and a new birth. We have to realize that those who are dead have at their disposal a world that is different from the one which lives in three dimensions. To turn now to the discarnate human being, the one we call a dead human being, perhaps we need a different kind of consideration. Our method of consideration must remain more mobile. Also, there are various points of view from which we could conduct our considerations. For life between death and a new birth is just as complicated as life between birth and death. So let us start with the relationship between the human being here on earth and the human being who has entered the spiritual world through death. Once again we have the first part, but it is temporal rather than spatial. We could call it the first phase of a development. The dead human being goes, you might say, out into the spiritual world in a certain way. He leaves the physical world, but especially during the first few days, is still, not, is still very much connected with it. It is very significant that the dead person leaves the physical world in close connection with the constellation arising for his life from the positions of the planets. For as long as the dead person is still connected with his etheric body, the constellation of planetary forces resounds and vibrates in a wonderful way through this etheric body. Just as the territorial forces of the earth vibrate very strongly with the waters of the womb that contains a growing physical human being, so in a most marked way do the forces of the starry constellations vibrate in the dead person who is still in his etheric body at the moment which is, of course, karmically determined, when he has just left the physical world. Investigations are often made, unfortunately, not always, with the necessary respect and dignity, but out of egoistic reasons, into the starry constellation prevailing at birth. Much less selfish and much more beautiful would be a horoscope, a planetary horoscope, made for the moment of death. This is most revealing for the whole soul of the human being, for the entry into death at a particular moment is most revealing in connection with karma. Those who decide to conduct such investigations, the rules are the same as those applied to the birth horoscope, will make all kinds of interesting discoveries, especially if they have known the people for whom they do this fairly well in life. For several days, the dead person bears within himself, in the etheric body he has not yet discarded, an echoing vibration of what comes from the planetary constellation. So the first phase is that of the direction in the starry constellation. It is meaningful as long as the human being remains connected with his etheric body. The second phase in the relationship of the human being to the cosmos is the direction in which he leaves the physical world, 
when he becomes truly spiritual, after discarding his etheric body. This is the last phase to which terms can be applied in their usual rather than in a pictorial meaning to describe what the dead person does, terms which are taken from the physical world. After this phase, the terms used must be seen more or less as pictures. So, in the second phase, the human being goes in the direction of whatever is the east as seen from his starting point. Here, direction is still used in a physical sense, even though it is away from the physical world. Through whatever is for him an easterly direction, the dead person journeys at a certain moment into the purely spiritual world. The direction is to the east. It is important to be aware of this. Indeed, an old saying found in various secret brotherhoods, preserved from the better days of mankind's occult knowledge, still points to this. Various brotherhoods speak of one who has died as having, quote, entered into the eternal east, close quote. Such things, when they are not foolish trappings added later, correspond to ancient truths. Just as we had to say that the organs of the breast are formed out of the east, so must we imagine the departure of the dead as going through the east, by stepping out of the physical world, through the east into the spiritual world, The dead person achieves the possibility of participating in the forces which operate, not centrifugally, as here on earth, but centripetally, toward the center of the earth. He enters into the sphere out of which it is possible to work toward the earth. The third phase may be described as the transition into the spiritual world, and the fourth as working or having an effect out of the spiritual world, working with the forces from the spiritual world. Such ideas bring us intimately close to what here binds the human being to the spiritual worlds. The table below shows that the conclusion of number four meets up with the beginning of number one, namely working on the head out of the realm of the sphere. This work is done by the human being himself after he has entered into the spiritual world by way of the East. In our dealings with the dead, we can perceive strongly that those who have died have to leave the physical world in an easterly direction. They are to be found in the world which they reach via the door of the East. They are beyond the door of the East. And in this connection, the experiences we undergo now, in the fifth post-Atlantean period, in the sphere of development of materialism, are very significant. For you see, in this fifth post-Atlantean period, the dead now lack a great deal because of the materialistic culture prevalent in the world. Some aspects of this will be clear to you from what we said yesterday, when, by suitable means, we come to know the life of the dead today we discover that they have a very strong urge to intervene in what human beings do here on earth. But in earlier times, when there was less materialism on the earth than there is today, it was easier for the dead to intervene in what took place on the earth. It was easier for them to influence the sphere of the earth through what those on earth felt and sensed of the after-effects of the dead. Today it can be experienced very frequently 
and this is always surprising in the actual case, that people who have been intensely involved in certain events during their life are unable in their life after death to have any interest in the events which take place after their death because they lack any kind of link. Amongst us, too, there are souls who showed great interest for events on earth while they were here, but who now, having gone to the spiritual world, find the events taking place since their death quite foreign to them. This is frequently the case, even with distinguished souls who here on earth were greatly gifted and filled with the liveliest interest. This has been going on for a long time. Indeed, it has been on the increase during the whole of the fifth post-Atlantean period, ever since the 15th and 16th centuries. Expressed in commonplace terms, which are unfortunately all we have in our language, our experience is that because they are less and less able to intervene in what human beings do, the dead have instead to intervene in the way people manifest as individual personalities. So we see that since the 15th and 16th centuries, the interest in the work of the dead has been concentrated increasingly on individual personalities rather than on the wider contexts concerning mankind. Since I have occupied myself closely with this very aspect, I have reached the conviction that it is connected with a certain phenomenon of modern times that is very noticeable to those who are interested in such things. In recent history, unlike former times, we have the remarkable phenomenon of people being born with outstanding capacities. In general, they work with tremendous idealism and distinguished endeavor, but are incapable of gaining a broader view of life or of widening their horizons. In the whole of literature, this has been expressing itself for some time. Individual ideas, concepts, and feelings expressed either in literature or art or even science, sometimes display strong promise, but an overall view is not achieved. This is also the reason why people find it so difficult to achieve the broader view needed in spiritual science. It happens chiefly because the dead approach individuals and work in them on capacities for which the foundations are laid during childhood and youth. The faculties which enable individuals to gain a broader view when they reach maturity are more or less untouched by the activities of the dead in this materialistic age. Incomplete talents, unfinished torsos, not only in the wide world but also in individual situations, are therefore very prevalent because the dead can more readily approach individual souls rather than what lives socially in human evolution today. The dead have a strong urge to reach what lives socially in human evolution, but in our fifth post-Atlantean period this is exceedingly difficult for them. There is another phenomenon today of which it is most important to become aware. There exist today many concepts and ideas which have to be very definite if they are to be of any use. Modern, more mercantile life demands clearly defined concepts based on calculations. Science has become accustomed to this, but so has art. 
think of the development art has undergone in this connection. It is not so long ago that art was concerned with great ideals on a wide scale, when, thank goodness, concepts were insufficient for an easy interpretation of great works which were full of meaning. This is no longer the case to the same extent. Today art strives for naturalism, and concepts can easily encompass works of art because now they have often arisen merely from concepts instead of from an elemental, all-embracing world of feeling. Mankind is today filled to the brim with commonplace naturalistic concepts, which are determined by the fact that they have been conceived entirely in relation to the physical plane, where it is in the nature of things to be sharply defined and individualized. Now it is significant that the so-called dead do not appreciate such concepts. They do not appreciate sharply defined concepts which are immobile and lifeless. One can learn some extraordinary things, some very interesting things in this connection. If I may be permitted to use such commonplace and banal expressions for these venerable circumstances, as you know, for we have gone through all this together here, I have recently been endeavoring to discuss, using lantern slides, all kinds of considerations about periods in the history of art. I have been endeavoring to find concepts for all kinds of artistic phenomena. To communicate through speech, one has to find concepts. Yet I have constantly felt the need to avoid firm, clearly defined concepts for artistic matters. Of course, for the lectures I had to attempt to define the concepts as far as possible, they have to be defined if they are to be put into words. But while I was preparing the lectures and formulating the concepts, I must say I had a certain aversion, if I may use this word, to expressing what had to be said in such meager concepts as have to be used if things are to be expressed in words. Indeed, we shall only understand one another in these realms if you translate what has been expressed in close textured concepts back into concepts of which the texture is less clearly defined. If one comes up against this experience at a time when one is also concerned with the world of discarnate souls, the following can happen. One may be attempting to comprehend a phenomenon which gives one the feeling of being far too unintelligent to grasp it in concepts. One looks at the phenomenon but has insufficient understanding with which to bind it properly into concepts. This experience, which is particularly likely when one is contemplating a work of art, can bring one into especially intimate contact with discarnate souls, with the souls of the dead. For these souls prefer concepts which are not sharply defined, concepts which are more mobile and can mingle with the phenomena. Sharply defined concepts, concepts similar to those formed here on the physical plane, under the influence of the physical conditions of the sense-perceptible world, give the dead the feeling of being nailed to one particular spot, whereas what they need for their life in the spiritual world is freedom of movement. Therefore, it is important that we occupy ourselves with spiritual science, 
so that we may enter those intimate spheres of experience where, as was said yesterday, the living can encounter the dead because the concepts of spiritual science cannot be as closely defined as can those of the physical plane. That is why malevolent or narrow-minded people can easily discover contradictions in the concepts of spiritual science. The concepts are alive, and what is alive is mobile, though it does not, in fact, harbor contradictions. We can achieve this by concerning ourselves with spiritual matters, and to do so we have to approach things from various sides. And approaching things from various sides really does bring us close to the spiritual world. That is why the dead feel comfortable when they enter a realm of human concepts which are mobile and not pedantically defined. Indeed, the dead feel most ill at ease of all when they enter the realm of the most pedantic concepts. These are the ones that have recently come to be defined in relation to the spiritual world for those people who do not want to live in anything spiritual but who want the concepts for sense-perceptible things to apply to the spiritual world as well. These people conduct spiritualistic experiments in order to imprison spiritual concepts in the world perceptible to the senses. They are in fact more materialistic than any others. They seek rigid concepts in order to hold commerce with the dead. Thus they torture the dead most of all, for if they want to approach, they force them to enter the very realm most disliked by them. The dead love mobile concepts, not rigid ones. These are experiences to which the fifth post-Atlantean period seems to be particularly prone, given the two circumstances of materialism here on earth and the peculiar situation of the dead as described. One and the same thing determines materialism here on earth and a certain kind of life in the spiritual world. In the Greco-Latin period, the dead most definitely approached the living in a manner which differed from that of today. Nowadays, in the fifth post-Atlantean period, there is what I would like to call a more earthly element, but you must imagine this, of course, in a more pictorial sense, a more earthly composition in the substantiality of the dead than there used to be. The dead appear in a form that is much more like those of earthly conditions than used to be the case. They are more like human beings, if I may put it this way, than formerly. Because of this, they have a somewhat paralyzing effect on the living. It is nowadays so difficult to approach the dead because they bring about a numbness in us. Here on earth, materialistic thoughts reign supreme. In the spiritual world, as a karmic result, the materialistic consequence reigns supreme. For there, the spiritual corporeality of the dead has assumed earthly qualities. It is because the dead are super strong, if I may put it thus, that they numb us. To overcome this numbness, it is necessary to develop the strongest possible feelings for spiritual science. This is the difficulty today, or one of the difficulties, standing in the way of our relationship with the spiritual world. For the earthly realm, seen spiritually, 
indeed the earthly realm can be seen spiritually, things appear different from what might be assumed when they are not seen spiritually. It is correct to say, as we have done many a time, that we live in the age of materialism. Why? It is because human beings in this materialistic age, human beings in general, rather than those who understand these things, are too spiritual, paradoxical though this may sound. That is why they can be so easily approached by purely spiritual influences, such as those of Lucifer and Armand. Human beings are too spiritual. Just because of this spirituality, they easily become materialistic. It is so, is it not? That what the human being believes and thinks is something quite different. Let me read that again. It is, it is so, is it not, that what the human being believes and thinks is something quite different from what he is. Those very people who are most spiritual are the ones most open to the whisperings of Araman, as a result of which they grow materialistic. Strongly, though, one must combat materialistic views and materialistic ways of life. Nevertheless, one may not maintain that the most unspiritual people belong to the circles of materialists. I have personally met many spiritual people, that is, people who are themselves spiritual, not just in their views, among the monists and such like, and equally many coarse materialists, especially among the spiritualists. Here, though they may speak of the spirit, here, though they may speak of the spirit, are to be found the most coarsely materialistic characters. Heckel, for instance, is a most spiritual person regardless of what he often says. He is most spiritual, and just because of this can be approached by an Aramonic worldview. He is a most spiritual person, entirely permeated by the Spirit. This once became clearly apparent to me in a café in Weimar. I have told this story before, perhaps more than once. Hackel was sitting at the other end of the table with his beautiful spiritual blue eyes and his marvelous head, Nearer to me sat the well-known bookseller Hertz, a man who has done great service to the German book trade, and who knew quite a bit about Haeckel in general. But he did not know that that was Haeckel sitting at the other end of the table. At one point Haeckel laughed heartily. Hertz asked, Who is that man laughing so much down there? When I told him it was Haeckel, he said, It can't be. Evil people can't laugh like that. Thus the concepts entertained by present-day materialists are so bare of spirituality that they are unable to discern the revelations of the spirit in the material world. So spiritual and material worlds fall apart, and the spiritual world becomes no more than a set of concepts. Anyway, the biggest materialistic blockheads are often found today in societies and associations that call themselves spiritualistic. Here are the materialistic blockheads who on occasion have even succeeded in tracing mankind's descent from the apes, even from a particular ape, to the greater glory of the human race. These people were not satisfied with the descent of man from the apes in general. They even traced the lines back to particular apes. For those of you who... For those of you who have not... 
For those of you who have not heard about this, let me explain. A few years ago, a book appeared in which Mrs. Besant and Mr. Ledbetter described exactly which apes in ancient days they were descended from. They traced their family trees back to particular apes, and you can read all about this. Such things are possible, even in much-read books today. We need the concepts I have elaborated today in order to penetrate more deeply into certain aspects of the theme we are discussing. For our world is definitely dependent on the spiritual world in which the dead live. It is connected with the spiritual world. That is why I have endeavored to unfold for you certain concepts which relate directly to observations of the immediate present. Everything that takes place here in the physical world has certain effects in the spiritual world. Conversely, the spiritual world with the deeds of the dead shows itself either in what the dead can do for the physical world or in what they cannot do because of the present materialistic age. I also described this present materialistic age insofar as it has been made excessively materialistic by certain secret brotherhoods, as I showed yesterday. The type of materialism that underlies all world events to a high degree today is what we might call the mercantile type. I ask you to take good note for tomorrow of the concepts I have put before your souls today concerning the life of the dead. But also, please note how little the present age takes certain things for granted which were taken much more for granted in earlier times. We shall see tomorrow how all these things are linked. However, it is characteristic for our time that certain conceptual views are extended to mercantile life which would escape someone who fails to pay attention to such features of our time. We ought not to let them escape us. Mercantilism is all very well as long as it is put in the right light in the way it stands within social life. For this to happen, it is necessary for us to have certain yardsticks for everything. Today, however, much conceptual chaos reigns. Yet within this conceptual chaos, concepts are given quite clear definitions, as is our way in the age of materialism, in which concepts are fixed to ideas based on what the senses can experience. And when a chaos of concepts then results as happens in today's materialism, this really does draw the sharpest possible line between the physical world in which human beings live between birth and death and the supersensible world in which they live between death and a new birth. Only consider in this connection the fact that in Central Europe, in contrast to other regions where the inclination to philosophize is less pronounced, there is a tendency to philosophize about the mercantile system, even though this is not at home in Central Europe. In Central Europe, there is a tendency to make a philosophy of everything. Thus, people also philosophize about what aspects of materialism are typical for our time. An interesting book by Yaroslav was published long before the war titled Ideal and Business. Certain chapters interested me particularly because of their significance with regard to cultural history. It was not the content that interested me, but their relation to cultural history. So, for instance, the chapter entitled Plato and Retail Trade. 
This deals with everything to do with commerce, with the mercantile system. Another interesting chapter is the astrological system applied to the price of pepper. Not uninteresting is also titled Wholesale Trade, as described by Cicero. Another chapter is entitled Holbein's and Lieberman's Portraits of Merchants. Not uninteresting, too, is the chapter Jakob Böhme and the Problem of Quality. Very interesting is titled The Goddess Freya in Germanic Mythology in Relation to Free Competition. And finally, especially interesting is titled The Spirit of Commerce as Taught by Jesus. As you see, everything is thrown in the pot together, but by this very fact things gain that characteristic which makes for materialism. Let us take all this as a preparation for our considerations tomorrow. The end of Lecture 22